I was a kid growing up in Jersey. Uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. wandered again to my home in the mountain, where in youth's early days I was happy and free. I looked for my friends, but I never could find them. I found they were all rank strangers to me. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining me to talk about rank strangers to me, the closing track from 1988's Down on the Groove is returning Bobcat, Jason MD. Hi, Jason. Hi, Rob. Thank you very much for having me back. Very, very happy with the first episode that we did, which is, of course, Sarah. Uh, and I got to tell you, that was a very popular episode. I got a lot of very positive feedback about oh, that yeah? episode and you in particular. So it was only a matter of time till we had you back. <laughs> I'm very pleased to hear that. And it's a pleasure to be back. I'm really looking forward to this. So, yeah, um, down in the groove, Jason. Uh, <laughs> down in the groove. For, for, for people who haven't heard your episode, mm. uh, your first episode, why do we want to talk? I mean, by the way, everybody, this is the first song we're ever getting to on this show from Down in the Groove. So even though I have dissed this album in different places here and there, uh, mm. I'm always happy to uh, <laughs> officially check off another Dylan record that we haven't gotten to. There's only a few left at this point, but Down in the Groove has remained untouched mm. till this moment. We, okay. you know, in your first episode, we got into your history of Dylan and how it came kind of through Down in the Groove. So why don't you explain that? <laughs> right. Well, by way of explanation, Rob, I'd like to read you something from the book Signifying Rappers by Mark Costello and David Foster Wallace. It's All right. Um, it, I think it will go a long way to towards explaining what I need to explain. He's talking about, or they're talking about, Pavlovs, which they call a unit of measure of everything we feel or think while hearing music that we've heard before. They go on to say, Pavlovs can be formed in as many different ways as we can come to love anything. Fucking to an album makes you love that album forevermore. Unless, of course, the woman you were with later breaks your heart into many small pieces, in which case you'll come to Pavlov. Yes, it's also a verb. The album with pain and hate it for all time. Aesthetically, Pavloving shouldn't happen, but in experience it does. Thus, at least two young Bostonians alive as of this writing cannot listen to, say, side A of the 10,000 maniacs in my tribe in any context without feeling things more pungent than anything sanely attributable to the maniacs. But this is the main part right here. Pavlovs are everything we come to associate with music and can re-experience in listening again that isn't in the music. They're what we each bring to bear when rightly cued. Pavlovs are the saliva that flows when the bells ring. All right? So that's a, a literary and long-winded way of uh, getting around to <laughs> down in the groove, which in the summer of 1988, I guess, when I was 17, getting ready for my first big concert ever, which was going to be Bob Dylan with Tracy Chapman opening in Vancouver. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So I thought... I mean, I, I only knew the hits and I thought, oh, he's just put this album out and my dad had bought it. So I better listen to it because presumably that's what he'll be playing. Right. So it was down in the groove. And, uh... <laughs> oh, you naive fool. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, I know. But I spent most of that summer listening to down in the groove. So I have Pavlov's all over that record. Right. <laughs> just because it sounds like being. That summer, I had a great summer when I was 17, and it was great to go to the concert. And, of course, he only played Silvio. You know, he didn't play 
the ugliest girl in the world or <laughs> Sally Sue Brown. Or Hard whatever. to believe. <laughs> yeah, Sh- Shenandoah. What, yeah, that didn't pop up in the set. But um, So I do have this kind of lingering affection for, the, for, for that particular record. I understand it's a two-headed head clutcher in many ways, like that, that whole period for Dylan, right? Like he was having a bit of a tough time in the, in the eighties, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even Dylan fans would acknowledge that the, the mid eighties were a rough period. I mean, I, I think generally the, the, you know, the consensus is all of his sort of worst records are all sandwiched around that time. Now, again, right. we, can, we can argue about the relative quality of any of these given albums. A lot of people would say mm. the worst Bob Dylan album is better than most people's other best work. Right, uh, which, which is possible in some contexts, but if you if you look at 1984 through 1989, you've got mm-hmm. the real live album, which to me really only has one song worth noting: "Tangled Up it. in Blue." Tangled Up in Blue. Then yeah. you've got Empire Burlesque, which I think is a bunch of great songs marred by not great production, mm. uh, and then you've got Knocked Out Loaded, which is just a grab bag of songs yeah. and then you also got, has a great one on there though right a, a, there's some there's a lot of great stuff on there there's yeah. a lot i mean brownsville maybe someday i will go to bat for that song every day of the week i love that song there's a lot of great stuff on there but it's a mm. it's a definite grab bag and then you've got down on the groove which is an even grabbier grab bag and we're going to get into the <laughs> album's right. checkered history yes and then followed up with the dylan and the dead live record right. so the, you know those are not anything that dylan fans are generally celebrating versus some of the other material and the fact that they were all together in yeah. one stretch seems to suggest that yeah things were not going that well for bob uh, in the 80s in terms of finding a direction on 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 what he wanted to do but but what you just said the, the quote that you just read makes a lot of sense i mean it makes sense to everybody of course the first thing you know it's kind of like it makes it makes me think about people say your favorite james bond is the first mm. james bond you ever saw right and mine is roger moore because that's the one i saw when i was a child what was it rob was it My, what was the movie i guess it would have been the spy who loved me uh, which oh, is right. a great movie on top yeah. of it but i mean you know a lot of people are like you know sean connery ride or die and to me it's like right. no sean connery's that all right, yeah, he's the first guy, but he's not Roger Moore because that's right. the one I saw when I was seven. That can yeah. be imprinted <laughs> Roger, you know, James Bond on me. So yeah. it makes total sense that you not having a greater context for Bob Dylan, you're like, all right, these, these are what Bob Dylan albums sound like in right. 1988. This is what it sounds like. There's always Apparently. that guy, Rob, you know, that, that will pick that will pick Godfather 3 as the best <laughs> of the series, right? Or, yes. or Kiss's 1981 concept album. Music from the Elder is the best rock record of all time, or Neptune is the best planet. Or you know, there's always that sort of because I think it makes them iconoclastic and, and oh yeah, and, oh and sure, nonconformist, sure. right? So there's probably a bit of that going on with me, but I'm not sort of I have I feel no compulsion to argue about Down in the Groove, right? Like I right. sort of know where it sits in the catalog, but. I do have my own Pavlovs. Pavlovs aren't transferable, right? That's the problem. Right, right. <laughs> because it right. means something to me. It doesn't mean anything to lots of other people, you know? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I have traveled in sort of fandoms of, uh, of Orson Welles a little bit because I love him. And every time yeah. I hear somebody say, you know, oh, you know what? The Trial is really his best film. He's going to roll my eyes. Like, All right. No, it's right. <laughs> just no, stop it. It's not. Come on. I know yeah. the obvious answer. Nobody wants to be obvious, but come on. But anyway, right. this, right, so again, we are going to talk about Rank Strangers to me, everybody. And by the way, of mm. course, that is not a Dylan 
song. It is a cover, and we'll get to all that. But I do, this since this is our first chance to talk about Down in the Groove, I do want to get into the, the history of this record, because it's really yeah. kind of interesting, is that this was, for an album that was so slapped together from different sessions, and, you know, they're really, by Dylan's own admission, there was no theme or purpose. It really was just sort of almost fulfilling a stipulation on a contract that he had to deliver X number of, of albums. This, there is a lot of good material on this record. And the fact Agreed. that, yeah. the fact that the stuff that doesn't fit is almost like, boy, if he had, cause apparently originally when he started working on this record, people had asked him what it was going to be called. And he said, self portrait volume two. That right. was the original idea. And so, okay, well, that immediately sets in your mind. Okay. Just, all right. I kind of know what I'm getting now. And, a lot of the stuff here in terms of the covers, there are some very, very beautiful and effective covers here. I mean, mm. the, it opens with Let's Stick Together, which I actually like quite a bit. I do, um, too. Yeah. Um, now, I there is one original, the uh, Had a Dream About You, Baby, which a lot of people can't stand. Again, I kind of like. I sort of like that song. Silvio, mm. I've never been that warm on Silvio, Silvio, but he seemed to have, you know, obviously he kind of likes it. As you mentioned, he played it in concert. It was on the Greatest Hits collection. I don't right. think it was ever a yeah. hit. But I guess they had to pull something off the record. But then you get the album closes with three, to me, very beautiful covers. 90 Miles an Hour Down a Dead End Street, Shenandoah, mm-hmm. which you mentioned, and then the aforementioned Rank Strangers to me, all of which I think are some of Dylan's most effective covers. And you can really get the sense of the heart he's putting into these because these are all like sort of, you know, from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, right when he was growing up. And you know that this music means a lot to him. And yeah. the fact that he couldn't put together a whole record of these covers is, to me, the tragedy of Down in the Groove. So if he had done what he set out to do, uh, with namely the Self-Portrait Volume 2, which had, you know, maybe had been a collection of songs, folk covers, and traditional songs, this might have really held up as quite an effective covers record but instead mm. it's still this kind of grab bag of different things there's there's a, uh, a an outtake from infidels on here mm. and then you've got a couple of originals the, that he did with wrote with robert hunter the ugliest girl in the world and that it's just kind of ghastly i think that song so it's like <laughs> it, you just wish that he had had the ability to keep his hand on the tiller through the whole thing but instead he just i don't know he kind of let it go and so instead, these really effective covers are, to me, are kind of buried with a bunch of other stuff that ain't that, ain't that good. Why, what do you think was going through his mind that he thought, what I really need to do at this point in my career is self-portrait too, because it worked so well the first time. Every, <laughs> everybody loved that, right? I think I'll try that again. It seems like a very dodgy strategy, right? Especially at that time, after two underperforming records, right? Yeah, it is, it is kind of gutsy to say, I'm going to do a sequel to the thing that nobody liked the first time around. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. but, but I mean, I think he also knew that he couldn't, he just didn't have it in him at that point to write an album full of original songs. I mean, right around this time, he had just finished recording or filming Hearts of Fire. Yeah. And he was, he was supposed to produce five or six original songs for the soundtrack and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He had had a dream about you, baby. Uh, and, and night after night, and then some covers. And in fact, the most effective, well, maybe not the most, I think the most effective song on that 
uh, and that from that movie is a couple more years by Shel Silverstein. Yes, but his but but his version of the usual by John Hyatt was actually originally supposed to be on Down in the Groove, right? And then he yanked it at the last minute. This album, strangely enough, for an album that was seemed so seemed so tossed off, it was actually worked it was worked on pretty doggedly. Because uh, in fact, it would originally had a different lineup of songs, and I can uh, I can get the I get this from Clinton Halen's book, The Recording Sessions. I find this fascinating. The original lineup of songs was "Let's Stick Together," "When Did You Leave Heaven," another not great song, "Got Love If You Want It," "90 Miles an Hour Down a Dead End Street," "Sally Sue Brown," "Ugliest Girl in the World," "Silvio," "Important Words," "Shenandoah," and "Rank Strangers to Me." Then he decided none that album was literally finished. And they were, they start sending out promotional copies. And then he decided, no, 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 I don't want to do that. He pulls the album at the last second and pulled Got Love If You Want It and The Usual and replaced both those songs with Death Is Not The End from Infidels, which I think, hmm. considering that that, re- that record was five years earlier, is the longest gap he's ever had between outtake and then being reused for a album later on. So it seems, it just seems baffling that he would, fiddle with the album that much and then it would still come out kind of the way it did right sort of half-baked you know yeah he was clearly kind of out of touch with his uh i don't know with his muses or with inspiration or something you know i think his him relying so much on collaborators too because mm-hmm. there are people all over this record right eric clapton and ronnie wood and mm-hmm. sex pistols guy and uh yeah the grateful dead appear and so on you know that yeah i mean said and he's co-writing some songs with robert hunter which I, not to speak ill of of the dead, but I mean, I actually think generally the songs he writes with Robert Hunter are some of his weakest efforts. Mm, uh, yeah. And so generally, you know, I, when I when I go back and I find some of the songs that he wrote with, Robert, I mean, there are some exceptions, but generally when he's collaborating, I've never been a big Grateful Dead fan, and we will be doing a show at some point, kind of with a dead with a, a deadhead to to contra that opinion. But it works so well writing with um, what's his name, Jacques. Levy for Desire, yeah, right? So for it's Desire, not a, yeah, right. It's not unprecedented for him to sort of collaborate in that way, but just, it, yeah, it, ugliest, the best they could do. Yeah. <laughs> ugliest girl in the world. Yeah, well. I mean, even the, well. even the front cover, uh, the front cover shot of Bob, the sort of ghostly image of him, was taken in 1985 three years before the record came out. So even that has kind of like a leftovers feel to it. Like, really? Yeah. You couldn't yeah. shoot a You couldn't shoot a photo of him from 1988. You had to dig one up from 1985. But that said, uh, um, you know, I, this is something I've always wanted to talk about and I've never had the opportunity because as I've said, we've not gotten to down on the groove before. If I'm going to besmirch the front cover, I really want to talk about the back uh, inside Ooh. booklet photo. Oh, okay. um, there is this really interesting photo, this sepia toned thing, and it's blurry. The photo is blurry. So I can't exactly tell what is going on here, but it looks like Dylan on stage by himself and then there seems to be a single woman, a single, she looks like a, a, oh, black, yeah. a black woman just standing there watching him perform. And I can't figure out what this photo is exactly. It can't, it must be a rehearsal, perhaps. That photograph is on the back cover of the LP as well. Oh, is it? Okay. Which okay. my father had. So I know what you're talking about. And it looks like he's on a flatbed truck. Yes. Yes. And some guitars and mics. And he's doing a very strange gesture, like he's, 
throwing a baseball or something. I don't yeah, know. You what see he... his arm reached out. Yeah, yeah. It's a very strange photo, but I love it. I, there's something wonderfully Dylan-esque about it where it's like, yeah. you know, when, 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 where was this? Was he, was he rehearsing? And that's, that's somebody that just, you know, is authorized to be there and just happened to be watching him. I mean, why would he be on stage by himself? Like none of it makes any sense. Yeah. And there's no context for this photo at all, but I love it. It to me, it's, I, yeah. it's just, it's to me, it's one of the great Dylan photos. Cause you're just like, where, when and where is this happening? And I, I, in some ways, I wish this was the front cover because I think it has yes. way more visual yeah. interest, even though you can, can barely see Bob. And I've, I've read that that's his new wife there, too. Didn't he just get married around that time? Or, yes, he did. Is that, is that who that is? That's what I've read, but nobody knows for sure because, as you say, it's blurry and it's hard to make out. But. Yeah, I love it, though. I mean, again, I remember when I bought this CD... And I pulled the sleeve out and I was like, what the heck? What, what is this? Yeah. And I would stare at that photo for the longest time. I mean, it's just really, really interesting to me. So, so like I said, it's, it's not a record, even though I've been pretty negative about it, it, it. To me, it's not a record you can just completely dismiss because there is a lot of great material on here. And Ooh. I just, it's the kind of thing where I'm like, boy, if he had managed to conjure nine covers of the quality that end this record, uh, you'd really, you really would have had something. You really would have had a very interesting covers yes. record. And obviously, nowadays, uh, Dylan has is has such stature that I'm sure that whatever contract he signs with Sony Music at this point, there is no minimum album stipulation. He's just too big of a name to demand. Mm. I think the record industry has changed, but I think back then he was still under the corporate Moloch a little and had to probably say, "All right, I'll promise to deliver." six records in a, in the span of this contract. And if he doesn't have the ability to write new songs, what's he going to do? Well, he's going to turn to covers mm. again, a perfectly logical move, but you just wonder, well, just, just record a bunch of covers then stay, drop the Robert Hunter songs, drop ugliest girl in the world for Pete's sakes, <laughs> yeah. drop it and just do these, you know, I mean, my God. So but again, at the same time, if it's the first record you're hearing, you, of course, you would understand why you would love it so much because it's, it's your introduction. Oh, then also, you know, it's partly because it's still in, right? If this had been released in 1988 by Chet Johansson and the, <laughs> the Boiling Warts, it would have been fine, right? Like, no, mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't get the hatred that it seems to get. It just, like you said, this, this strange period for Dylan in the 80s, what, four, four or five underperforming records, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think he talks in Chronicles, too, about his writer's block around this time, right? Mm -hmm. like just nothing was coming. And I, we mentioned it briefly before, but I, a lot of those 60s cats had some trouble in the 80s, right? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, they're just in their 40s now, and everything is wham and Duran Duran, the wild boys. <laughs> right. Which is, which is how it should be, of course. But uh, they sort of... Uh, all of McCartney had trouble and, uh, you know, Dylan certainly did. And I think all those guys found it hard to adapt to this new sort the Rolling Stones, right? That, yeah. That was another group that was having a terrible time. The Rolling Stones with, I think it was Dirty Work was the record where they yeah, were. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Pastel Miami Vice suit coats and flopping on a couch, right? Pretty yeah. dire record. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Simon had an okay eighties. He did pretty That's well for true. Graceland. Yes. He, that that was a real powerhouse. But but yeah, a lot of yeah, a lot of sixties acts and older acts really did have a, a tough time of it. And of course, you know, we know in hindsight now that the you know salvation was just around the corner thanks to George Harrison. 
Uh, yes. But but okay. So again, I've spent a, we've spent a lot of the show, or I've spent a lot of the show, kind of dumping on down on the groove. Uh, but let's talk about one of the good songs, which is one of the okay. ones you picked, which is yes. it said it's the the final song on the record, "Rank Strangers to Me." This was written by. Uh, again, it's not a Dylan song. It was written by Albert E. Brumley, who was a gospel uh, songwriter. He had a couple other hits. This is probably his most famous song. But his, I don't think he ever sang it. I think he was just a songwriter. Uh, the version clearly that everyone is the most familiar with is by the Stanley Brothers, which we mm. know Dylan was a huge fan of. And you can hear it on YouTube. And it was a, a actually a you know relative hit, however that stuff was measured back then for the Stanley Brothers, and it is their version that is in the Library of Congress. It was considered a, a artistic, of enough artistic merit. The song has become so famous through folk circles that, uh, you know, it's in the Library of Congress. So clearly that's the version that Dylan liked, and I think he does a really beautiful, spare, haunting cover mm. of this song, and it is one of the darkest closers of his, I'd say, of his entire album career, because the the sense of loneliness and deprivation in here is just, it really sinks, gets into your bones. I read somewhere the other day while doing research, of course, that somebody <laughs> called it hopeful. And I thought, no, there's nothing hopeful about this song <laughs> at all. You know, he can't wait till he's dead so he can see his friends again. You know, that's the only time he can be happy, says, is that, you know, the narrator's point. I don't see any hope in that. <laughs> yeah. And again, the perform I mean, it said the lyrics, the second verse, it's everybody I met seemed to be a rank stranger, no mother or dad, not a friend. Could I see they knew not my name and I knew not their faces. I found they were all rank strangers to me. They all moved away. Said a voice of a stranger to that beautiful home by the bright crystal sea. Some beautiful day. I'll meet him in heaven where no one will be a stranger to me. I mean, there's something about using the word rank, in mm. there really hits home of, I mean, of course, rank, we te- tend to think of the word rank as, as meaning, you know, like diseased or dirty or filthy, but yeah. by calling, calling strangers rank really, you know, sinks in there that these, you know, you are alone. You are a stranger in a strange land. And to me, that is, that's the really effective turn of phrase in the song is just this feeling of utter loneliness, even when you're surrounded by people. Right. And I know it's always a dangerous proposition to try to figure out what what dylan's why he's doing the things he's doing uh but ending the record with this one you know it it does prompt a couple of questions right like uh i was wondering if he's not talking about how hard it is for him to go home now he can't go back to hibbing anymore mm. right i i don't remember where i heard it but there was a story of somebody was with dylan in new york and i think it was around the rolling thunder period and they stopped outside a restaurant and they were going to go in for dinner or whatever. And Dylan just stopped and said, look, look at all those people. I'm going to ruin their night. And the friend mm. said, you know, what are you talking about? He said, you know, get off your egotistical high horse, Bob. He said, no, watch. And they walked in the restaurant and he was totally right. It changed the weather in the whole room, you know, like people rushing over for autographs and other people being studiously too cool to notice him and so on. But it, it changed the whole room, right? And so that means that when he goes back to Minnesota or just about anywhere, right, his fame effectively turns people he knows into strangers again, right? Like it puts that distance between him and them, that a disconnect between him and everybody else. I wonder if maybe he was talking about that here or one of the reasons that he'd pick a song like this. It would be interesting to think about what, I mean, he presumably heard this song when he was a child or at least a teenager from the Stanley Brothers long before he set out on that path to become Bob Dylan. And obviously, mm. uh, you know, we know, you know from the stories that Bob was young, Robert Zimmerman was very ambitious. 
when he got mm-hmm. to New York, he went for stardom. He, he actively pursued it and he hired Albert Grossman. And, but at the same time, he could not have known that he would achieve a status beyond anything, you know, of anybody's wildest imagination. Right. And yeah, maybe it is a little lonely. Maybe it is. Uh, well, probably, sure. I'm sure it is lonely. I mean, just that, that story itself is sad. It's very tragic mm. to think that you cannot just go into, uh, you know, a restaurant and have a meal and not have every, as you said, ruin everybody's, everybody's night. I mean, my yeah. God. And except, and I really think the performance of it, of this is, is just beautiful. I need mean, the song ends with everybody I met seemed to be a rank stranger. No mother or dad, not a friend could I see. They knew not my name and I knew not their faces. I found they were all rank strangers to me. And then after he's done singing, the song continues on for like a good, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 seconds of the guitar just winding down of the two, mm. the, 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 the melody playing and the way it just trails off into nothingness. Yeah. It really is just desolate. It's just, I mean, it really are. Yeah. It's, you know, Bob's not sending you out on a, on a cheery note here. I mean, look, not, <laughs> none, of, none of the covers are particular. I mean, Shenandoah is very pretty, but that has a sadness to it, obviously. And 90 miles an hour down a dead end street is also sad, but that's more of a, sad romance song, which is a little mm. easier to, to tolerate. But this, I mean, you know, I can relate to this kind of, the, I, I mean, I will say I can, I can pinpoint, I can pinpoint the loneliest I ever felt was in a uh, sports bar in San Diego one time. And I was in a room full of people on mm-hmm. a Sunday and it was the loneliest I ever felt because of the context of what was going on in my life at that moment. And I remembered thinking of it at the moment. I felt, wow, I am as lonely as I've ever felt. And there are a hundred people in this room. You know, and it does. So it's a, you don't need to be in a room by yourself to feel lonely. I, in fact, most of the time when I've been in rooms by myself, I don't feel lonely. But when right. in that room I was and this idea that this this person is returning home. Uh, and again, it could be, you know, is it, uh, you know, I, a lot of Dylan songs feel like they could take place during the Civil War. Is it somebody returning back from war and everyone that they have found, all their family are gone? It could be any of those things, but just, it's a really beautiful, it's sensitive. Dylan's vocal is very sensitive. It's not, he's not trying too hard. He lets the words do mm-hmm. what they're supposed to do. And his singing to me is really, really beautiful. And again, it's, it's a downer of a way to end the record, but you can't help but feel that Bob was maybe feeling that way in his career. They just wondering, where am I going here? What, right. what, do, what, you know, as you just mentioned, you know, in, a, in an era where Duran Duran, is the big thing, you know, it's mm. like, he's got to be wondering, does anybody want to hear Shenandoah? Right. You know? I mean, right. what does anybody want to hear that? I mean, I did later on, but in 1988, his record company must've been like, what the hell is this stuff? You know? So I could see why it, it's, it's again, you don't want to read too much into his biography into any given song, but nevertheless, he chose to end for an album that he futzed with so much. He, this was always seemingly in place. He was always choosing to end this record with this cover. It's a really powerful track. It wastes no time. You know, he's, he starts singing, what is it, three seconds into it. And it's very spare. There's only guitar, bass, I think a fretless, heavily reverbed fretless bass. Mm-hmm. And there is a backup singer, but you, I don't think she's credited. But there's some people think it's, um, I, I'm going to screw up the name. Madeline Quebec, I think. Madeline Quebec, okay. Yeah, she was singing on some other stuff on there. But it's very subtle. Um, and then, like, yeah, like, like you said, Rob, that he's thinking, where am I? What happened to all this 
stuff that I used to understand, actually. Like, it mm-hmm. doesn't make sense anymore. And I get sort of future Pavlovs from that in a way, because when I go, I've been in Japan for 25 years now. When I go back to my hometown, you know, there are people that aren't there anymore. They've, some have moved away and some are dead and uh, buildings are gone. Lots has changed, right? So that I can walk around now and I don't recognize anybody. So that feeling of going back and everybody's a rank stranger, I, I understand that, you know. You have to spend 25 years in Japan first just <laughs> to understand one song down in the group. That's real research. Yeah, hey, man, geez, I appreciate the commitment to the bit, man. That's uh, amazing. <laughs> now, it's funny. You mentioned uh, Silvio, that he, that, he, that he played Silvio yeah. in concert, and that was pretty much his only kind of nod uh, to down in the groove. Uh, I mean, he played, he played Silvio quite a bit around that time. I think mm. if we want to go back and chart the history of what album has he promoted the least, it would be knocked out loaded where he sang, got my mind made up one time. And that is it. That is the only song, uh, ever performed in concert from knocked out. Loaded. So that, oh, that really? Record, ah, yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, there is that audio of, of him doing Brownsville girl, but it's, I think that was a rehearsal and he doesn't even really sing the whole song. It's just the mm. chorus, but I mean, literally knocked out loaded, got one song one time and that was it. So he really just was like, yeah, whatever. So at least down in the groove, got a little more, uh, concert support. And this song actually ranked strangers to me. He actually started, he's played it live 26 times, not Ooh. very much, but his first time was June 10th, 1988, which was right after this record came out. So I, I mean, you oh, could argue, wow. yeah, I mean, you could argue that he was trying to promote <laughs> down in the groove by doing this song. Now he only did it uh, twice in 1980. Let me say, let me double check. Yeah. He only did it three times in 1988 and then not again until 1989. And that's where most of the performances come from. And then he resurrected it in 99, 2000, 2001, and he hasn't done it since. But, Mm. I mean, you know, he did do it within the window of Down in the Groove being released. And if you go to YouTube, there is a version, a live version. It's a more recent one, probably from around 2000. And it's much more upbeat. It, the tune is much more, it's much faster. And even though the, the lyrics are all the same, it's a much more upbeat performance. It's more celebratory because I just think it's the crowd is enjoying him playing this classic song that they're familiar with, even, even though the, the, you know, the melody, <laughs> even the, though they're not. Yeah. yeah. Even though they're not. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that he obviously feels greatly for. We know his appreciation of the Stanley brothers. Right. Um, he did that duet with Ralph Stanley. And I think the quote from that was, uh, it was the greatest thrill of my career to sing with Ralph Stanley. So, I mean, he holds the Stanley brothers in, in great esteem. And mm. I could, you know, I could see that um, if your main art is as a musician and you want to pay tribute to someone, the best way you can pay tribute to them is to do a fine cover of one of their songs. Point, yeah. That's how you do it. I mean, that's why I do this show is because I want to honor Bob in the only way I know how, which is gabbing about it. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's like you want to, if you really love Rank Strangers to me and it's a beloved song, you want to do it as best you can. And I'm right. glad you mentioned the uh, the slightly reverbed, guitar there that does give it a kind of weirdly ghostly feel yeah like you you get the sense that he is in a recording almost maybe the image that you see on the cover where it's all darkness except there's one light like he is just by himself no one is around yeah yeah that is what it sounds like it's a very lonely sounding song which is thematically perfect right which is why people should stop shitting on down in the groove there's some good (laughs) stuff worth worth uh excavating there. You know, it, 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 it doesn't deserve 
profound and durable obscurity. Actually. And right, and especially in an era now, so I think we're where, doing our part to rescue it, Rob. I, 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 I hope so. I know one of the reasons uh, why I love this guy as much as I do is because to me, there is no project he has ever associated him, associated himself with that to me is entirely useless or unworthy of, mm, of excavation right. in some even in the small i mean you know, maybe tarantula but i mean for the most part <laughs> you know even you were you know but to me everything that he's touched you have something in there where you go well that's really interesting that's right. really interesting or this or that and this like i said in terms of it, yes this this record is a grab bag uh, i don't i mean it seems particularly perverse not to get back on the uh, the, the, the first part of the show, but like, you're going to pull an outtake from infidels and it's not blind Willie McTell. Yeah. Not right. foot of pride. It's not <laughs> right. Lord protect my child. It's death is not the end. I mean, what, yeah. you know, like that seems purposely like, all right, I'm just picking that, you know, you, or even like Julius and Ethel or something, which I actually kind of like, it just seems so <laughs> strange. So again, you can't, you just got to wonder what he was thinking back then. But nevertheless, if this record had been, 10, 10 songs of the quality that are of the final three, you would have really had something. And it would then, then you would be able to say, well, down in the groove is one mm-hmm. of his best covers collections. And you wouldn't have to wait until good as I've been to you to say, Oh no, he finally managed to right. put together a total artifact. So yes, I am glad that we finally got to do a song from down in the groove because there was so much to say about it. And there is, <laughs> there is some good stuff here. And I am it, it's so wonderful that that's your first record. That's just marvelous. There should be a term for, you know, when you're deeply committed to some artist, and it doesn't have to be a singer necessarily, but sometimes the, the swerves and the flops are every bit as interesting as the success is, right? When I want to listen to Dylan, I don't always go straight to Desire or, or Blood on the Tracks or mm-hmm. whatever it is. You know, I've sucked a lot of the sugar out of those records in a way. <laughs> Whereas something like this or New Morning or, you know, Planet Waves or something are much more likely, you know, this kind of, not obscure necessarily, but not even disregarded really. But I don't know, minor, is that the polite way to talk about them? These minor? Yeah, lesser works, sure. But uh, yeah, like you were talking before about Orson Welles, you know, of course, everybody knows what the best one is, but it's interesting to watch the other stuff too and go, oh, what is he up to here? What's he, what's he working on here? What's, you know, brewing in the background? So I like that about, and Dylan's, his massive catalog, there are these swerves and flops that are rewarding to sort of uh, check out from time to time. So I hope people do. Maybe, you know, they go, oh, I think I have down in the group somewhere. <laughs> right. Some and box it, in the basement, you know. Well, and especially in an age where everything, you, most people are getting their music almost everybody's getting their music digitally at this point you can pick and choose you can cherry pick you know right it's not right. it's not like the vinyl version where you got to sit through ugliest girl in the world <laughs> to get to <laughs> some of the better stuff you you know you can sit there and say all right i'm gonna pull right and that and that's how i got to appreciate the songs on this record was that i have you know i bought this album on itunes and then mm-hmm. i was like okay i go through and i mean when i bought the cd i listened to all of it and there was certainly some songs that were that hit, I hit the repeat button on and others not so much. But in the age where you can just make your own playlist, you're just like, all right, I'm just going to cherry pick the best and, right. and leave the rest behind. But I mean, yeah, this is, like I said, there is some really good stuff here. And so I, I'm glad that we finally got a chance to talk about Down in the Groove because it said it's an interesting record behind the scenes mm. uh, as much as it is in sort of in front of the scenes. There's a lot to say about it. And it's just, it's in a unique 
record in his catalog. Again, especially when you realize that the next bunch of original songs would end up being on a Wilburys record and you see what, okay, you know, wow, that the, the, the the hard turn is about to take place and we're in a, we're in a, going to be in a much better place very soon. So Bob, you know, Bob was able to stick it out. You know, everybody felt like ranked strangers to him. He was able to stick it out and (laughs) things ended up getting a lot better. And, you know, it would be really fascinating to hear him sing some of these songs again. I mean, we know that he did all the, the Sinatra stuff, but it would be mm. interesting to hear him dig some of these songs out, to hear what that voice now sing, sounds like when he's singing some of these songs. He obviously still loves these tunes. Yeah, uh, That would be fascinating to hear him sing 90, 90 miles an hour down a dead end street or rank strangers to me. It would be, it'd be really fascinating. So he said, it's a really great song, everybody. The cover of rank strangers to me, it's really great. And even though we, I, again, I spent part of the show <laughs> dumping on this record, there's some good stuff on it, including this. So if you have not heard, Frank Strangers to Me on Down in the Groove. Give it a listen. Yeah, I think people might be pleasantly surprised. Go, wow, this is uh, this is really good. And Ugliest Girl in the World, not 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 yeah. so good. <laughs> you know that oh, when well. we get to that one, the show is nearing its end. We know that we're heading towards the final. <laughs> is that final the last stages. one, Rob? Is maybe, that the maybe, very final one? Maybe so. I don't know. I, I think I got to go out <laughs> on a higher note than that. So yeah. Anyway, uh, well, Jason, thank you once again. Uh, you know, I always enjoy talking to you, and uh, this has just been great. And I appreciate you know that we have to kind of put. Uh, for anyone who doesn't remember, Jason is in Japan, as he mentioned. So the time difference here is Jason is in the future right now. Yes. As I'm talking, you have to hopefully the world's in a better place in the future where you are. It's today. great. It's great. Right. So yeah, it's yes. <laughs> fantastic. It's so tough. again, I, I love being able to talk to people all around the world. It's just amazing. So thank you, technology, for allowing this to happen. Mm. It's marvelous. But like I said, I always enjoy talking to you, and you are welcome back on Pod Dylan anytime. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks for the show, Rob. I really like the format and it's always interesting. Even if I'm not interested in the song, I always listen anyway, just because it's always uh, worthwhile. So good on you. Keep it up, brother. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So, all right, everybody, that's going to do it for this episode. Of course, if you want to follow the show, all the episodes are on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're always talking Bob over on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan. And then if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Henry Bernstein, Max Hutzel, and Sebastian Krug for their support of Pod Dylan. I really appreciate it. That's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Everybody No mother or dad, not a friend could I see. They knew not my name, and I knew not their faces. I found that.